And Lord, as your word goes forth right now, I pray that you would touch our hearts, that you would minister to us in a very powerful way, Lord. We desire to hear from you. And um, you're speaking to us as we read uh, chapter 6 of Isaiah. And Lord, uh, I know we come in perhaps at the end of a day being tired, and, and um, I just pray that you'd open up our ears and awaken us spiritually to hear what it is that you want to say. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in the first five chapters of Isaiah, we have seen that Isaiah has been indicting the nation. Particularly, he has focused on Judah, the house of Judah, and Jerusalem. And as we were in chapter 5 last week, he, he would write about God's disappointing vineyard. And that is that uh, there was uh, the well-beloved that had a vineyard, speaking of the Lord. And he did everything to make sure that that vineyard would be able to produce good grapes. He uh, put it on a very fruitful hill. He dug up and cleared out the stones. He had a wall around it and a tower and had a uh, wine press in it. And he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But what happened was that it brought forth poisonous grapes or wild grapes or, or fruit that wasn't any good. And he went on as we saw Isaiah writing about how the Lord would say woe to uh, those who, who represent the, the vineyard. And that is in verse 7 of chapter 5. The vineyard of the Lord is the host of the house of Israel and also the man of Judah. So in chapter 5, we see that Isaiah is indicting not only Judah, but also the house of Israel, those 10 northern tribes up north. And so Isaiah, as we are going to see here today, uh, he gave a series of seven woes there in chapter 5. And, and one of those woes in verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I really believe that we are seeing that fulfilled in our day and in our nation and in our culture today. We see so much of that to where that which is good is called evil and that which is evil is called good. And you and I as Christians, we are being pressured more and more to accept that and celebrate that which is evil. So here Isaiah gives that series of woes. But in chapter 6, we see that it is told to us when Isaiah was commissioned to ministry. So we read in chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So as we open up this book of Isaiah, you recall that he would minister during the reigns from Uzziah, that it said, all the way through Hezekiah. So Uzziah here, in the year that he died, that's when Isaiah really was commissioned to ministry. Uh, during that time that Uzziah is off the throne and Jothan, his son, would come on the throne and he would minister for the next 50 years, Isaiah, and, and maybe even a little longer into the beginning reigns of Manasseh, who was a terrible king because uh, tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in half uh, by Manasseh. And, of course, Hebrews chapter 11 discusses how there are those who came along and were sawn the thunder. That is, they were uh, sawn in half. And Isaiah most likely was one of those. So Uzziah dying in 740 B.C. This is when he uh, 
Isaiah is called to, to ministry to be a prophet. But he says here, it's interesting, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and, and he sees this vision of the throne of God and, and of heaven here, and it really is quite amazing. Now, Uzziah, he was one, when he reigned, he was 16 years old. He reigned for 52 years, and he was a good king. He was a great administrator. He was one that led the nation in uh, prosperity. Uh, Uzziah was, as we read from uh, 2 Kings chapter 15, he's called Azariah there in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. Uzziah was one that led the nation into economic prosperity. He was a good king for 52 years. Isn't that amazing? For over a half a century, he ruled, he sat on the throne, and he was the king of Judah. And not only did he bring economic prosperity, but also he would bring military strength to Judah as well. He fortified the cities that we learn as we read from the Old Testament. He was one that built towers. He was even one that was an inventor of military weaponry. He, he was one that uh, developed, you know, the, uh, to be able to catapult large stones down on the enemy and, and even uh, would make the, the bow and the arrow of uh, high technology where they could shoot more than one arrow from the bow. Uh, and he was one that had a standing army during his reign of over 300,000 men in Judah. That was a large army back then. So not only did he bring economic prosperity and military strength in all those years, but he was also one who loved the land that the Bible tells us. And he was one that advanced the technology and, and the production of agriculture. He dug wells. He uh, would update and advance the aqueduct system there in Judah. Uh, he was one that had cisterns that were built to be able to hold water. So he was a great, great king for all that time. And what is interesting is, is the way that Uzziah ended his life for 52 years, a great king. Now, can you imagine if we had a great leader in our nation for 52 years, how much of a blessing that would be? I mean, it would be great if we just had one for four years. So, <laughs> but that's a subject for another time. But really think about how the people were feeling. Because all of a sudden, here's Uzziah, he dies. And you know how he died, by the way. That at the end of his reign, what he does is he goes into the temple. For some reason, he goes there to the altar of incense that's right before the Holy of Holies, and he's burning incense. And the high priest and the 80 other priests go to him and say, you can't do this, Uzziah. You're the king. Only the priests, as you know from your Old Testament studies, were allowed to go into the temple. Uh, those of the tribe of Levi, the descendants of Aaron. And of course, Uzziah was from the tribe of Judah. And so as they confronted him and said that you can't do this, Uzziah said, bug off. I'm going to do it. For whatever reason, he felt compelled to go and burn incense there in the temple. And we know that he was struck with leprosy and he would die of leprosy and his reign was over after all that time you know it kind of reminds me a little bit of Asa earlier Asa who ruled for about 38 years in Judah and Asa was a king that was a good king and did what was right in the sight of the Lord and Asa he was facing this million man army from Ethiopia and he went to the Lord and cried out to the Lord and the Lord delivered Judah from the Ethiopians that huge army and it says that there was peace in the land until the 38th year of Asa's reign 
And all of a sudden, it was Israel, that the 10 northern tribes up north, that wanted to attack uh, Judah. It was very hostile towards them. And, and so what did Asa do? He came up with this plan. He made a treaty with the enemy. He made a treaty with Syria. And he said, hey, to the king of Syria, why don't you attack Israel and they'll have to leave my border and, and go up north and, and deal with you guys. And the plan worked. It was a brilliant plan. But we know that the prophet would come to Asa and the prophet Hanani. And he said that, you know, Asa, why did you do that? It wasn't anything for you as you cried out to the Lord, to the Ethiopians. The Lord helped you. It wouldn't have been anything for the Lord to help you in this situation. But you made a treaty with the enemy, and you did it in your own strength, in your own understanding, in your own way. And Asa, who was full of pride, he got mad at the prophet and threw him in prison. And then he got leprosy in his feet. And he ended up dying because of that. And I mention that because Uzziah, even though he had a good reign and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, same with Asa, there was peace in the land for 38 years. They ended their lives in pride. And I'll tell you one way for you to be defeated. He was defeated literally as that leprosy was in his feet. And one way for you to be eaten up, your ministry and your spiritual life is you become prideful. You see, we're even going to talk about that on Sunday, is that's one of the steps that Peter, it led to him denying the Lord, that he's boasting that, Lord, I'll never forsake you. I'll die with you. I'll go to prison with you, even though all these other guys will run away from you. I'm going to stand next to you. And we're going to see by the time that the rooster crows twice, that there is Peter, that fear grips his heart, and he's losing his boldness and his courage. And he ends up denying the Lord to a servant girl and those who were there in the courtyard of Caiaphas. Listen, we need to be careful of pride. It's such a terrible sin, and it's a message that's given to us all throughout the Scriptures, even as Proverbs warns us over and over again about the prideful man, the prideful woman, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So here is the people, you know, all of a sudden they're wondering what's going to happen to us that now there is a Uzziah sitting on the throne. And that's when Isaiah, that he saw the Lord high and lifted up, was in the year that, that, you know, Uzziah ended up dying. I think there's some important lessons and considerations for you and for me tonight. You know, we can have spiritual leaders and those who are mentors and those that we really look up to. You know, in my years of ministry, my pastor, Pastor Chuck, was a man of such great integrity and a servant's heart. And, and you know, I learned so much from him. I love being around him. And I was thinking about this month because it was four years ago in October that Pastor Chuck went home to be with the Lord. And I miss him. I really do. I miss Papa Chuck, is what we called him. And a lot of us guys are in the ministry because of his example, because of his encouragement. An example of a, a servant, one who is faithful to teach the Word of God, one who is humbled before the Lord, just faithful to do his ministry for over 50 years. He did. And I remember in his, his you know, latter years that some of the guys were asking, well, what's going to happen to, to Calvary Chapel when Pastor Chuck passes off the scene or if he ever retires? And I remember Chuck would always kind of address that at the pastor's conference, and he was very wise. He would say, 
that the Lord's going to take care of it. He's the head of the church. He was always very careful to point us past him into the Lord. And you see, it's an important lesson for us because the Lord is the one sitting upon the throne. And that's what Isaiah saw. And there may be that person in your life that, you know, is a mentor, again, maybe a spiritual leader, somebody who's been a blessing to you. And the Lord desires for you to look past them and to see him sitting upon the throne. And you know that happens in two ways. One way is that, you know, somehow the Lord will allow just a dying to take place in your mind and in your heart towards that person. Because, you see, none of us are perfect. None of us are, are, are perfect in the sense that if you know me long enough, there's going to be something that I will say or something that I will do that perhaps will disappoint you. Or you might think, you know, I, I didn't really like that. Because we're all flawed, aren't we? And it's not an excuse to, to, you know, not be an example. I want to be in a great example to this congregation of a pastor and as a man of God to have godly character and integrity and to walk in humility, but I'm flawed because everybody is flawed. And sometimes there'll be a dying of me in your eyes and in your heart. Because I didn't live up to your expectations. And you know what I've learned? That's okay. Because that causes you to look to the Lord who is perfect. And he's the one sitting upon the throne. And I never want to get in the way of anyone here that I have the privilege and opportunity to minister to, to see the Lord clearly. So if I die in your eyes a little bit and, and you know, that's okay with me. I'm going to continue to try to grow in the Lord and in the love of the Lord and be a blessing to you. But our security and our strength is not in the individual as much as they come along in our lives and they're a blessing to us. I'm not dismissing that. But ultimately, your strength and your blessing comes from him who sits upon the throne. It was the year that King Uzziah died. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen. And then Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And his train filled the temple as we continue. And then in verse 2, above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, and two he covered uh, his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he cried to one another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, the seraphim, six wings above the throne. Now some scholars, as you look at the angelic beings around the throne of God, there's cherubim that are mentioned. You can go to Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10. And then you go to the book of Revelation chapter 4. And when John saw the vision of heaven, and he talks about the four living creatures. Now in the book of Ezekiel, they are identified, those, those cherubim around the throne of God, the four living creatures full of eyes. And we know that, that there's the seraphim here. Actually, it's the only time that seraphim, I believe, are mentioned in the scriptures. In Ezekiel, in his vision of heaven, he mentions the, the uh, living creatures and the four faces and the eyes all about. Same with John. He identifies them as cherubim. Or are they the same as seraphim? We know that Ezekiel talks about that the cherubim had four wings and then two uh, that looked like hands. And could those perhaps be the, the six wings, and we know that uh, there in Revelation chapter 4, six wings of the 
for living creatures. But be that as it may, seraphim means the burning ones. And describing the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 10, their parents is like burning coals of fire. So whether they're the same order of angelic beings, they're there around the throne of God. And what is interesting here is these seraphim, six wings, the cherubim around the throne of God. And I'm going to read it to you from the book of uh, Revelation when John in his vision, because I want to point out something that I think you'll find interesting, that the four living creatures were full of eyes in the front and the back, and the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature like a face of a man, the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. You, when you go to Ezekiel and you read about the cherubim, uh, we see that it is written there, um, kind of the same thing, that the cherubim, that they had the likeness of their faces. Each had a face of a man. Uh, each had uh, four had the face of a lion on the right side. And each had the uh, four had the face of an ox on the left side. Each had the, uh, the four had the face of an eagle. And so they too had the same four faces described Ezekiel as John in the New Testament book of Revelation. You say, so what? What's that have to do with us tonight? You know, I believe those cherubim are speaking of Jesus that they're pointing to Jesus. You say, how do you figure that? Go to the book of Numbers. You go to the book of Numbers. You go to chapter 2, and the children of Israel in their wilderness wandering. You see, when they left, Exodus chapter 13, the end of that chapter tells us that they left in orderly ranks. It wasn't, you know, the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston's, you know, they left Egypt, and there's just a mass of people out there heading out into the wilderness. It wasn't that way. The book of Numbers is a number, you know, a book of order, uh, of, of numbering the people. Uh, and, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we are told to do everything decently and in order. So when the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness, they went in orderly ranks. When they camped, again, it wasn't as the Shekinah glory of God would stop. They would set up camp there, and it was set up in a certain way. It wasn't just everybody spread out and camp wherever you want. But there was a certain order that they were to camp, and Numbers chapter 2 tells us about that. You see, on the east side of, of the camp, in the middle was the tabernacle, the tribe of Levi, that's Aaron and Moses. They were there in the middle. But on the east side, three tribes would camp there, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. And it tells us in the book of Numbers that Judah was the standard tribe. In other words, they would carry a flag. And so if you were from Judah or from Issachar or Zebulon, you know that you were to be over there to camp, right? It's kind of like a summer camp for kids or VBS what we do. We divide up the kids into groups, and there's maybe the green group, the blue group, and the yellow group. And you belong to the yellow group, and they'll carry a flag or have the T-shirts, and they know what group they are to be in, right? Helps us organize and keep them in the group they're supposed to be in. Well, that's the way it was in the wilderness wandering with two and a half million people. So on the east side, Judah is the Kar Zebulon. Judah was the standard flag. On the south side was Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And Reuben uh, was the standard flag. They were carrying the flag. So you put it up on the south side, and those three tribes went there to, to camp. Uh, on the west side was Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. And Ephraim was the standard flag. And then on the north side was Dan, Astor, and Naphtali. And Dan was the standard flag. And when you look at the numbers that were in the 
the tribes there, when they camped, it made the form of a cross. The south side having the most people. Ancient rabbis and, and rabbinical traditions would write about those standards. Matter of fact, Sir Isaac Newton wrote about it. We know him as a man of science and mathematics, a great, brilliant man in the 1700s. But he did a lot of writing on commentaries of the Bible, and he wrote about that very thing. And what the ancient rabbis have taught over the years is that Judah, the standard that they had, that it had the image of a lion. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because Judah, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah... That Reuben, their standard flag, was an ox. That Ephraim, the standard there on the west side, they had a standard of a man. And then Dan, on the north side, had a standard of an eagle. Stay with me. Let's dig a little further. When you look at the Gospels, the four Gospels have four different perspectives, right? Matthew's gospel is written to show us that Jesus is the king of kings. And when you consider that, the lion is the king of beasts, represents the king. Mark's gospel is written to show us that Jesus was the perfect servant. And the ox, of course, is that servant animal. Luke that we're in presently, Luke being a Gentile, remember that. Some people think that Luke was one of the disciples or was Jewish. He was Gentile. He wrote 25% of the New Testament with the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. But he was one that wrote his audience to the Greeks because they were always into the perfect man. And so that's what Luke was getting at. And, of course, the face of one of those cherubim was a man. And then John's gospel is written to show us that Jesus is deity, divine. And the eagle always represents that, that divinity. Isn't it amazing? Absolutely amazing. From the Bible, in the book of Numbers, through the Gospels, to the book of Revelation, it all speaks of and points to and is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Absolutely amazing when you look at it. And when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they were pointing to Jesus, even though they didn't know it. And they were pointing that Jesus, that he's the king of kings, and he's the perfect servant, and he's the perfect man, and he's the son of God, he's divine. And so these angels, they point to Jesus and they speak of Jesus, these seraphim that are around the throne of God. And, and as we look at these seraphim, six wings, two covered their faces. They couldn't directly look at the throne of God is what is suspected, that the holiness of God. You remember when Moses was up on the mountain that he wanted to see the glory of God. He said, I want to see your glory, Lord. And the Lord said, you can't see my glory, Moses, because it'll consume you. So what I'll do is you hide in the cliff of the rock and then I'll pass by you and you can see my afterglow. And that's where we get that term afterglow. And it was there that Moses saw the afterglow of the Lord. But here is these angels covering their faces and covering their feet. And some suspect that it speaks of coming in humility. And then with two, that they would fly around. And again, the cherubim had four wings. The four living creatures, six wings. You can sort that all out. But as we see, they ascribe the holiness of God. Even as in Revelation chapter 4, here they're saying, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In the book 
book of Revelation, they're saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. They rest not day or night. And as they said, holy, 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 three times, I believe that's ascribing to the Trinity. And we continue reading in verse 4, And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so they cried out with their voices. There was a shaking, even as we cry out to God. As we worship him, there can be a shaking that takes place in our hearts and in our lives. And it filled with smoke. I think it, I think it speaks of the Shekinah glory of God. And then in verse 5, so I said, Woe's me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. We see here that he says, Woe is me. Remember chapter 5? Woe is you, and woe is you, and woe is you. Seven times, woe is you. But when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, he said, Woe is me. You know, we can look around at us and we can see, again, that a culture and a society that is saying that good is evil and evil is good and, and what we talked about, that those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, and, and we can think, woe is you and woe is you and woe is you. And this was a word that Isaiah was to give to the people. But I'll tell you something that happens when we get our focus on the Lord. And as we are in the presence of the Lord, I know it happens to me, and I'm sure it does with you. All of a sudden, we say, woe is me. When we you know, look around us, we can say, woe is you. But when I look to the Lord, I see how far short I am of his holiness and his righteousness. And that's what happens to the person who's in the presence of the Lord. It was Peter that you remember that Jesus said, I want to borrow your boat. And so they went out a little ways and he preached to the people. And then he turned to Peter and he said, I want you to go out into the deep and I want you to drop down your nets. And Peter protested at first. He said, we've been fishing all night. We didn't catch anything. What do you mean? Why don't you just do the preaching and I'll take care of the fishing? All right, because everybody knows you don't fish during the day. Jesus said, go out a little bit, put down your nets. And of course, they caught a big haul. And it was Peter that fell down on his face and said, depart from me, a sinful man. We know in Revelation chapter 1 that when John saw the resurrected Lord, that he fell down as if he was dead. And I'll tell you something that happens when we're in the presence of the Lord it isn't always woe is you and woe is you and woe is you, but woe is me. Because, Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. And, Lord, I realize that, that I fall short as well of your holiness and your righteousness and your perfection. And that's what light does. Light exposes those things in our hearts. And I can always tell when somebody really has been in the presence of the Lord. Oh, they'll speak truth. And they'll give correction and rebuke where is needed. But there's a humbleness that is there and a love that is there. It's not just blasting people. And sometimes that I'll talk with those and, boy, they come out and, and woe is everybody else. Kind of like they're so much better than everybody else. Listen, the foot of the cross is flat. We all have access to it. 
And the Lord desires to use us, even as he's calling Isaiah to ministry. But Isaiah, there was a work that had to be done, because let's continue reading as we says that he says, for I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. So do we, don't we? My eyes have seen the king in the glory, uh, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim, verse 6, flew to me, having his hand a live coal, which was taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. So the coal taken from the altar, that altar that would be in front of the, the Holy of Holies, there in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And remember that the wilderness tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly tabernacle we know from the book of Hebrews. And there in that heavenly scene, the throne of God before it is that altar which represents the prayers of the people. And as we go to the Lord, and even as First John says, that we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the good news for you and for me, that we have been forgiven because Jesus, he went to the cross and died for our sins. And then he rose again. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And we are forgiven people and we can just praise him tonight for that. But I have a feeling here that some have suggested that perhaps that that altar there, that coal, you know, purged his lips, his tongue, that they suggest that perhaps Isaiah, that maybe he was very harsh, as we have seen the harsh words that are given in Isaiah, the first five chapters. And sometimes we say words that are hard for people to hear, but perhaps that he said it with harshness. Maybe perhaps he said it with anger and he needed his speech to be purged. You know, that's what the Lord has to do with me. When I first got into ministry, I thought I'll show them. I'll teach them. I'll really put people in their place. And the Lord over the years has really ministered to me. He's had to purge my lips and my tongue. That as you speak, you speak truth. We don't compromise it. But Jesus was the perfect balance of grace and truth, wasn't he? And as Ephesians tells us, we're to speak the truth in love. And as we do that, I think people are going to be more open to receive from us and listen to us. You know, I think in the beginning of my ministry, I was lopping off a few ears, even as Peter in the garden did. You guys know the story. We'll look at it on Sunday. But here they came to arrest Peter, I mean Jesus, and Peter, he pulls out his little sword and he swung and got Malchus, the servant of the high priest's ear. And, and Jesus said, put it away, Peter, and he healed Malchus's ear. You know, the word of God is like a two-edged sword, isn't it? And I know that unfortunately, in my early days in ministry, and unfortunately even at times when I'm frustrated or whatever, you know, my attitude isn't right, that I've even taken the word of God and I've chopped off a few ears. Because of my harshness or because of my attitude or whatever the case may be. And we can do that very easily. And we can start chopping ears and, and people don't want to listen because of the harshness and the tone. Listen. Let your truth be with grace and with love. Oh, don't compromise the truth. 
And I love Jesus was able to do that. You know, the common people heard him gladly in Mark's gospel. They recall that Dr. Luke writes that he's there at the temple and he's teaching the people and they hung on every word as he was preaching the gospel to them, the good news. He was full of grace and truth. And as we show people that we really care for them and we desire for them to hear the truth because God loves them, then they're going to be more you know, open to hear from us. Sometimes I'll talk with people. I even talked to one yesterday that they say, get so frustrated, I get angry when I'm talking to this person because they don't believe or I seem like they don't listen. And so the anger comes out. And so that can happen with us. So make sure that you're not chopping off ears. And make sure that you're given the truth with, again, with a balance of grace and love given to people. So here, you know, your sin is purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And of course, it's an amazing verse that we see here, that um, a reference to the Trinity. Who shall I send and who will go for us? And that question is asked even today, isn't it? And Isaiah answers that question. He says, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go tell this people. He said, Send me. I pray that as the Lord asks us that question even tonight, who shall I send? He wants to send you to the place that you're working at, to the neighborhood that you're living in, the family that's going to be around you, especially as we get towards the holidays. We meet with families and with friends. We're around a lot of people. He wants to send you to be able to give truth and be able to give the love and the good news of Jesus Christ to others, to be able to converse with them. And even as Isaiah says, I'll go, I'll go. Here's his ministry. Go tell this people in verse 9, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Verse 10, make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So initially you kind of read that and you, you think, wow, you know, that's, you know, is, is the Lord shutting their ears and hardening their hearts? Matter of fact, when you go to Matthew's gospel, I believe it's chapter 13, when Jesus starts telling the parables of the kingdoms that he quotes from here, verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 6. And what he is saying there and what Isaiah is, is being told by the Lord, not that the Lord is going to harden their hearts, but they don't want to hear. You're going to have a ministry to those who don't want to respond to the message. That the truth that you're going to give to them falls on deaf ears. They're not going to respond. Jeremiah was told the same thing. Jeremiah had a ministry of 40 years and not one convert. That we know that Jeremiah, that he led anybody to the Lord. Or, or that was a tough ministry that he had. Isaiah had a tough ministry, and it's a tough ministry that you and I have today. You and I, as we give truth, there are those whose hearts are hard towards the Lord. And sometimes we can think, Lord, you know, what is it? it is, is it me? Is it my methods? And then we get frustrated and we stop doing it. And I think that even the enemy sells us a bill of goods that you can't really share because they're not going to respond or they're just going to laugh at you or they're going to make fun of you. 
And Isaiah was told, hey, there's a nation that is rebelling against me. Their hearts are hard. Their, their ears are closed to me. But Isaiah, this is what you're to do. And I think that verse 11 is very important for us here tonight to consider. He said, Lord, how long? And you might be thinking the same thing to that family member or that coworker or that neighbor that you live next to. How long should I keep ministering to them, giving them the gospel? Should I just quit? And there's going to be a time where you're going to dust the feet, you know, the, you know, just as they were told, the disciples shake the dust off your feet. There's going to be those moments and stuff. But it's interesting that the Lord says, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, and the land is utterly desolate. And the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming as a terrapit tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. How long, Isaiah, till the judgment comes? And there's going to be a remnant that's going to return. You keep giving the message as long as you can. And one thing that we can always do, even though people say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear about Jesus. I don't want to hear about it anymore. Family members, you know, there's one thing that we can do is we can keep praying. That, Lord, you take the blindness away and soften their hearts. It's the work of the Spirit. And to keep praying for them and pray for that opportunity for you to keep ministering to them. The Lord was going to give up on his people. And we shouldn't give up on people either and giving them the gospel and the opportunities to share with them, to love them. Oh, the Lord's going to have to purge our lips because sometimes we want to blast them, don't we? And there is that time, again, of rebuke and correction. I'm not dismissing that from anyone. To be able to say, hey, brother, listen, the Lord loves you. And your life is going to be empty if you don't turn to him. And you're going to go down this road of sin and carnality. You're going to end up in bondage and slavery to it. And that's the message that Isaiah is saying. And sometimes in the scriptures, when we see that the Lord is saying these words that, of, you know, that judgment's going to come, that we picture a mean, angry God that's just ready to zap his people. But it's a heartbreaking father that is saddened. Or the fact that his people have turned away from him. And listen, he loves that person that we get frustrated at, you get frustrated at. You think they don't understand, they don't want to listen, but you keep praying for them. And you keep sharing with them. And Lord, give me the words to say. And to be able to do that. And to be used of you. Who shall I send? Send me. And I pray that's all of us here tonight. And we're going to pray and we're going to stop just a little bit early, not going to chapter 7. But as we're sitting here, when I finish praying, we're just going to sing a couple songs. We're just going to be quiet before the Lord. Even as Isaiah at this time, that he saw the Lord. And this is a time that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And I just want you, for about 10 minutes, we're just going to sit and just sing and close the service in that way. If you feel like that you need to leave, if you can just kind of be quiet. And uh, so we can just, you know, continue in worship tonight and allow the Lord, say to him, Lord, are you sending me to who? And, and 
Lord, give me the wisdom or change my attitude, whatever the Lord might be saying, because he wants to use us in these last days. He really does in a wonderful and a very powerful way. So, Father, we thank you for this chapter. It is so rich and so incredible. And I just pray that you would, Lord, minister to our hearts as we just spend some time in worship, Lord. The question is asked, who shall I send? You want to send us. As we leave this place, we go out into our mission field. They just have the courage and the boldness and the wisdom and the grace and the love to speak to others. To know that you desire to use us. And Lord, that you would purge our lips. Lord, that we would have the wisdom to say and when to say it to others. And not to be afraid of the truth. We don't want to lop off ears, but Lord, we don't want to tickle ears either. We want to give truth to others and point people to the one who went to Calvary for us because of his love. So Lord, just continue to minister to us as we're just kind of quiet before you and continue in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.